in chapter 8, verses 5 and 20 of 1 Samuel, which we've considered several weeks ago, we read about the king that the people chose. Those are the words that were used, and we've seen how that has played out in Saul as king of Israel through chapters 15. And now we come to the king that God has chosen. In chapter 13, verse 14, the Lord says these very words. He says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept, you being Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. See, Saul was rejected because he was not a man after God's own heart. We use that phrase. We're familiar with that phrase. After God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. Well, what does that mean? We tend to isolate this somewhat well-known phrase and take it to mean that David was a man who pursued after God's heart or that David loved and valued the same things that God does. And there's certainly truth to that. In fact, I think that's largely the point of 1 Samuel 16, 7, that the Lord looked on the heart of David and saw something of that. But I don't think that's the point of 1 Samuel 13, 14. Certainly the spirit of the rest of 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel and even David's Psalms testifies that he was such a man. But is this what that means in its context? I want you to think about that with me for just a moment. The word after, a man after God's heart, is precisely the same Hebrew construction as in chapter 8 regarding Saul. When Israel first demanded a king, they wanted one after the nations, like the nations. Literally, they wanted a king according to what the other nations had. And this same prefix, like or according to, is attached to one Hebrew word, which is translated his own heart. It could be more clearly translated, the Lord has sought a man for himself according to his heart. So the contrast is between Israel's desire for a king after their heart and God's desire for a king after his. See, it is not so much speaking of the fact that it's the function of David's heart that is drawing God's attention, but rather the function of God's own heart that is drawing his attention to David. Just as the people had chosen a king after their own wishes, according to their own heart, like themselves, so God is choosing a man according to his wishes, his wants. In fact, this is exactly how King David understood it. Second Samuel chapter 7, verses 20 and 21, we read, And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. David knew whose heart was behind all this, and it wasn't his own. The same thing is confirmed in 1 Chronicles 17, 18, and 19. And what more can David say to you for honoring your servant? For you know your servant. For your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. So we could summarize it this way. Israel had chosen the king they wanted. We saw how that turned out. 
Now God is going to choose the king he wants. And what kind of king does God want? What are the characteristics of that king? Well, that's what 1 Samuel 16 is all about. We're going to look at this chapter under two major headings. First of all, the appointing of the new king in the first half of the chapter. Secondly, the anointing of the new king in the second half. Appointing first half, anointing second half. And I'll have four observations under each one of those points. First of all, let's talk about the appointing of the new king. What was it that made David someone that God wanted? First of all, God wants a king from the tribe of Judah. God wants a king from the tribe of Judah. Saul's kingdom had been removed. We read about that in chapter 13 and chapter 15. In chapter 15, verse 28, the Lord says, or Samuel says to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. Who is this neighbor? Well, we read about him in verse 1 of chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil. That means you're getting ready to anoint a new king. And go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. Now in Genesis, Jacob, the son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham, had prophesied that Israel's kings would come from the line of Judah. Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And in the last few verses of the book of Ruth, we read the following words. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Jesse was the grandson of Boaz and Ruth and was from the tribe of Judah. We read in 1 Samuel 17, 12, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. God wanted a king from the line of Judah. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And Jacob's prophecy concerning Benjamin is particularly ominous. Genesis 49, 22. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. This warlike posture of the tribe of Benjamin came not only in the defense of their country, but also in the depravity that that tribe particularly had within their own country. In Judges 19 to 21, Benjamin took up an offense against the other 11 tribes of Israel and caused civil war to break out. What led to the civil war was the horrific abuse and death of an unnamed Levite's concubine. The 11 tribes turned against the tribe of Benjamin and nearly wiped them out because of their refusal to give up the perpetrators. And we certainly see this ravenous wolf prophecy play out in Saul's life in the chapters to come as he fights against David. However, grace runs through the tribe of Benjamin as well, as both Queen Esther and the Apostle Paul are descended from that tribe. In Romans 11.1, Paul says, as proof that God doesn't ultimately cast off his people, he says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. He restates this in Philippians 3, 4, and 5. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, 
This makes Paul's testimony of God's saving grace all the more precious, doesn't it? He says in 1 Timothy 1.15, the saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. See, there were two Sauls who came from the tribe of Benjamin. King Saul, the epitome of the sin nature that is at war against God, and Saul, Paul, whose nature was changed, whose nature was equally murderous, equally warlike, yet was changed from a murderous Pharisee into an apostle of grace. Paul is the example of what God does, no matter what family you come from. And I want you to know that this morning. It wasn't David and his goodness that made God choose him. David was good in many ways. He said, we read these very words, David is Skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Those are all true, but that wasn't the ultimate reason. The ultimate reason is he was from the tribe of Judah. And just because Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin doesn't mean that God doesn't save from the tribe of Benjamin. He clearly does. This is possible because God's true king, Jesus, is descended from the tribe of Judah. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Jesus is the point of David being chosen from the tribe of Judah because God was going to bring an everlasting kingdom in fulfillment to his promise to Jacob back in Genesis 49. And David was just a piece of that puzzle. Jesus was the goal. And God got him there. And ultimately, right now, he reigns, as Revelation 5 says, as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So God wanted a king from the tribe of Judah. Secondly, God wants a king from the city of Bethlehem. God wants a king from the city of Bethlehem. Again, in 16... Verse 1, we read of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And in 16, verse 4, we see Samuel making this journey to where? Bethlehem. Even though Samuel knew this transfer of power was coming, remember he had already announced it to Saul in the previous chapters, he does see the actual implementation of this transfer of power being somewhat problematic, as he should. As he says in verse 2, Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me. This could be perceived by Saul on the part of Samuel as an act of treason. But notice how the people of Bethlehem interpret Samuel's coming to them in verses 4 and 5. The elders of the city came out to meet him, trembling, and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. Now, in order to soften the blow of a prophet coming into a city, The Lord tells Samuel to inform the people that he has come to offer sacrifice. The Lord instructs Samuel to tell Saul that he's going to offer sacrifices in Bethlehem, but Samuel doesn't reveal to Saul the occasion of the sacrifices, which is the anointing of a new king. This isn't a lie, since he does presumably offer the sacrifice. We do, after all, read in verses 2 and 3, the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to offer sacrifice to the Lord. If he's taken the heifer assuming the sacrifice is going to be offered. 
And this is exactly what Samuel tells the people in verse 5. Yet, as verse 4 says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was one of the least of the towns of Judah. Yet we read in Micah chapter 5, verses 2 to 4, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And these very words are applied to Jesus in Matthew chapter 2, where we read in verses 1 to 6, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judah, Judea, or Judah, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. So it's written by the prophet, quoting Matthew 5, sorry, Micah 5. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For you sh- from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And he did. So God wanted a king from the tribe of Judah for the sake of Jesus Christ. God wanted a king from the town of Bethlehem for the sake of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, God wants a king from the family of Jesse. God wants a king from the family of Jesse. As Samuel arrives in Bethlehem, his attention is immediately drawn to Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. And for good reason. Typically, the firstborn son would inherit the throne. We read in verse 6, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And when he discovers that Eliab is not the one, he proceeds to go through the next seven sons of Jesse in verses 8 to 10 from oldest to youngest. And each time we are told, the Lord has not chosen these. The Lord has not chosen him. The Lord has not chosen him. The Lord has not chosen him. And verse 7 becomes the key verse that lets us in on what criteria Samuel is using to evaluate kingship and how this differs from the Lord's own standard of measurement. We read in verse 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The Lord looks on the heart. Now, we must not necessarily conclude that God opposes appearance, as though repulsiveness was the sign that God is calling someone to be king. Find the ugliest guy in Bethlehem. Verse 12 actually mentions David has some pretty good looks, ruddy, handsome. But the point is that none of that is important to God. None of that is definitional for kingship. It was for Saul. It was for the people of Israel. Wow, look at Saul. He's so tall. He looks like a king. Well, David did have the looks, so to speak, of a king. We're told that he's a man of good presence in verse 18. But the point is that external appearance neither qualifies nor disqualifies. It just doesn't matter all that much. As a church... We, like Samuel, can often be guilty of judging others based on outward appearance, can't we? Oh, you certainly wouldn't try to wiggle out of that conviction, would you? I mean, it does give us reason to think that we're included. 
Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Are we mankind? We men and women? Yes, fallen men and women. And so we have a tendency to do this as well. We can be impressed by outward beauty and clothes and success and wealth. The church could be tempted to favoritism based on appearances, why James 2 has a complete chapter on it. We must remember that the Lord often does not choose the impressive. Not many of you are noble. Not many of you are wise. Not many of you were the movers and shakers in this world. So what does God see, dear ones, when he looks at us? Does he see someone who, like Saul, is overly concerned with our reputations and what other people can see with their eyes? Or does he see within us a heart for him? And is that what we value in each other? Is those, are those the kinds of encouragements we give to each other? Do we say things like, dear one, sister, brother, man, I'm seeing the fruit of the Spirit displayed here in your life. Or are we focused on external things? Good jobs, family performance, ministry activity. All that's fine, but that ought not to be the way we encourage one another as the body of Christ. We ought not to go to people and encourage them based on what we see with our eyes. We should encourage them about what God's Word says about them. These sorts of things should occupy our encouragement of one another because they occupy God's concerns about us. If we don't speak those sorts of things into each other's lives, we're actually at war with what God is most interested in about us. And it has nothing to do with how we look. It has everything to do with who we are as people. What's our character like? So let's be that way. King David, being designated by God as a man after his heart, as I already mentioned, was primarily about God choosing David. It wasn't about David choosing God. David's installment as Israel's king was the result of divine choice and divine promise keeping, not the result of any particular merit that David had. In fact, we read in 1 Kings 8.16, Since the day that I brought my people out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be over my people Israel. The focus is on God's choice of David as his servant, not on David being a choice servant of God. Our character does not determine whether or not we are men and women after God's own heart. God has already determined that. Doesn't that encourage you? If you're a Christian this morning, you are already a man or woman after God's own heart because God has already chosen you. He has set his heart upon you and chosen you to be his own. It's way more important that we be after his heart in that way than what, in an objective way of God's choice than that we be subjectively moved in that way. Remember, our Jesus was not physically impressive. He, like David, is called the root of Jesse. A root is nothing visually stunning. You paid attention to a root lately? In fact, because it's underground, it isn't even noticeable most of the time. That's the point. Yet in Isaiah 11.10, we read, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. 
Isaiah's use of the root of Jesse expresses the promise that there will be a messianic king who would be born in David's family line, in the family of Jesse. The prophet uses a similar metaphor in Isaiah 11, 11, where he says a shoot would come out of the stump of Jesse. Isaiah was prophesying about the coming judgment on the people of Judah, and the nation would be left without anything. But didn't a, wasn't a king promised from Judah, and yet Judah's going to be reduced to stubble, as it were, to a dead stump. And yet what seemed to be a dead, decaying stump would bring forth new life in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In fact, in Romans 15, 8 and 9, Paul writes, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs like Jacob, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. And so are we, and so we have. In Revelation twenty-two sixteen, Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David the bright and morning star. Jesus is the root of Jesse. As we'll see in chapter 20, King Saul will often use the phrase, the son of Jesse, to refer to David in a derogatory way. Yet because God determined to bring his king from the family of Jesse, nothing and no one will be able to stop him. In the book of Acts, Paul makes it clear once again that the root of Jesse God's promise to David is indeed Jesus Christ. Acts 13, 22 and 23. And when he said... When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. End quote. So God wanted a king from the tribe of Judah. God wanted a king from the town of Bethlehem. God wanted a king from the family of Jesse. Fourthly and finally, God wanted a king from the fields of sheep. God wanted a king from the fields of sheep. Look at verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Jesse didn't even think to get David. The first reason he wasn't considered was because he was obviously the youngest. He didn't have the height or the stature of his other brothers. But another reason David wasn't considered is because of what he was doing. He was just keeping the sheep. Yet far from being a reason not to get David, it's this very thing that sets him apart from Saul. Remember when we first met Saul, he was a failed shepherd. He was looking for his father's lost donkeys in chapter 9. And if anything, far from disqualifying David for consideration as king, that He was tending sheep is the very thing that qualified him. In fact, this is central in God's mind in choosing David. We read in 2 Samuel 7, 8, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. He didn't say, I took you from the tribe of Judah. He didn't say, I took you from the town of Bethlehem. He didn't say, I took you from the family of David. He said, I took you from the pasture. From following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. What drew God's eyes was a boy faithfully tending sheep. 
Psalm 78, 70 and 72 says the same thing. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. You want a verse to pray for your pastors? Pray that one. Psalm 78, 72. Pray that we would shepherd with upright heart and skillful hands. When David became king, his job description didn't change. What changed was the flock he was called to shepherd. He went from shepherding Jesse's flock to shepherding God's flock. This picture of shepherd leadership is central to the entire biblical portrait of what it means to lead. In fact, when Israel's failed shepherds were not caring for and feeding and watching over the flock, God promises that he's going to send a new shepherd leader for his people. In Isaiah or Ezekiel 34, we read, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, this was written hundreds of years after David died. How then could David once again be their shepherd? Well, remember, God is going to make an everlasting covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7, in which David is promised an everlasting kingdom. There will be a king on his throne forever. And that kingdom is found and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate and true son of David. Remember what is said about the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 9? When he saw the crowds, he had compassion, for they were harassed and helpless, like followers without a leader. Is that what he said? No, like sheep without a shepherd. And Jesus says of himself in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolves coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Dear ones, here's the king we truly need, the one who is pursuing our wandering hearts and died to protect us. See, we, we know this, but let me remind you that Israel's request for a king was not in and of itself wrong. But their insistence, despite the warnings of Samuel, and their motive to be like all the other nations is what displeased God and twisted that request into a rejection of God himself. We know that the monarchy was a part of God's plan all along, but it was not yet his timing. And they wouldn't have had to wait too much longer if they had just waited and not insisted on Saul. Only 10 years after Saul was crowned, David was born. What heartaches and sins God's people might have been spared had they only waited for God to appoint a king after his own heart, to be their king, instead of insisting on their will, their way, their timing, their desire for a king like the nations now. Same for us, isn't it? We have our choice and the kind of king we have. Who will you have to be your king? Who will have your ultimate allegiance? Will your choice be based on what you can see with your eyes? 
or will it be based on faith in God's king that he has already chosen? Choose well. If you choose another king, and that king could be yourself, he will take and take and take and take and take from you. It's what idols do. But there's another king who will love you not because you are choice, but because you're chosen. What better king could we serve than a king that doesn't need us but only wants us? What better king could we have than the king that God has chosen for us to have as a king? One who is gentle and lowly in heart and in whom we will find rest for our souls. If you haven't yet closed with that king, pray that you would this morning. You won't find a better one, I promise. So that's the appointing. The anointing is going to go a lot quicker. So what was it that drew the appointment of David as God's king? Tribe of Judah, town of Bethlehem. Family of Jesse, flock in which he was shepherding. Those were the things that caused God to set his heart on David. But that doesn't mean David wasn't significant. And that David himself didn't have a heart for God. He did have a heart for God. And so we're going to turn secondly to the anointing of the new king. First of all, David is anointed. Look in verses 12 and 13. He sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now Samuel anoints David with oil just as he had done Saul previously. However, what marks this anointing most significantly is not the oil, but what the oil represents, the Holy Spirit. After Samuel anoints David with oil, the Spirit immediately comes upon David. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon people to equip them for specific tasks, to rule, to prophesy, to build. In fact, the, kingdom, the, the Spirit's primary work in the Old Covenant is, is mainly reserved for covenant leaders, for significant leaders in the people of Israel, whether they be judges in the book of Judges or patriarchs or, or kings in this case. And in the case of the king, it provide, the Spirit provided the king with both the authority to rule and the ability to rule. In fact, three times in 1 Samuel, we're told that the Spirit rushed upon Saul but we're only told once that the Spirit rushed upon David. What's the significance of that? Well, the writers indicated that the Spirit rushed upon David from that day forward. While the Spirit occasionally came upon Saul to perform specific tasks because he was God's anointed one, granted, according to the people's will, the Spirit remains on David from that day forward enabling him to rule because he is God's anointed king. And God is not going to let his spirit depart from his anointed. With the rushing of the spirit on David came what? The departing of the spirit from Saul. So first of all, David is anointed. Secondly, Saul is abandoned. Look at verses 14 and 15. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. See, Saul remains God's anointed king, as David will repeatedly acknowledge. 
This is a private ceremony among his brothers, but it has not yet been publicly declared. And the assumption would be it would not be publicly declared until the present king is dead, or at least removed from the throne by an act of God himself. And David knows this. However, without the Spirit, Saul's authority and ability to rule will begin to drastically fade. We've already seen it fading from the beginning, the last several weeks. But now, not only does the Holy Spirit depart from Saul, but a harmful spirit comes to him. Now, why did God let an evil spirit torment Saul? In what way was the evil spirit from the Lord? Well, it's likely that this this evil spirit was part of God's judgment upon Saul for his disobedience in the previous chapters. Regardless, from this point on, Saul's psychological state and well-being is going to begin to unravel. And we're going to see Saul become emotionally volatile and increasingly paranoid. However, even in this act of God's judgment, God is extending mercy to Saul. How? The presence of David. The evil spirit was used to bring David into Saul's life. When David says, or sorry, Saul says in verse 17, provide for me a man, that's the same word that God uses in verse 1, I have provided a king for myself. So Saul provides for himself the man God has provided for himself. That's mercy. It's important to note that this evil spirit that troubled Saul had a good intention behind it. That's why the Lord is using it. The the spirit is evil, but the Lord is using it for a good purpose. The final verse notes that the evil spirit came on multiple occasions to bother Saul, but it also departed from him on multiple occasions because of the intercession of David. Dear ones, there's a gospel here. There's a gospel here. We are all left to ourselves, prone to deteriorate, to fall apart. Maybe not in the great mental ways that Saul happens here, but have you been reading the articles recently? Have you paying, I'm sure you're paying attention to the news, although you should be paying to it a whole lot less. But you should pay attention to it. We don't want to stick our head in the sand, be ignorant. But the rise in mental illness across our country is staggering, especially among younger people. Recent studies have shown huge jumps in mental illness among youth, teens. Psychological breakdown, mental warfare, emotional disintegration is nothing new to the Bible. It's a call to entrust yourself to a king who can help you. Now, this king doesn't sit in a corner and play a guitar, okay? And music helped him. But the greater point is that when we, are in, when we are breaking down mentally, when we are struggling with life, when we are having a hard time getting our minds around our, the consequences of our own sin, and we feel like our lives are ruined, and we just, we've blown it time and time again, and there's no way out of this, and I can't find a way forward, all we need to do is listen in the corner and hear a David playing. 
and he can heal your torment. He can cause evil spirits to depart from you. This passage is about the importance of having David as an intercessor. And we have an intercessor in the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will banish all evil spirits from your life. You will not be possessed. You might be oppressed according to his own will and ways, all for your ultimate good and glory. But if you will, he will not be allowed to touch you in any eternal meaningful sense. You'll be protected by him as your shepherd. Dear ones, I wouldn't want to go through this life without a David in my corner. With all the craziness and all the confusion out there, all of our mental distress and breakdown is a call from God himself to listen to the music playing in the heavens of a song that can set your mind and heart free. And just as we are sinful, we'll also see that David himself commits a great sin and pleads for God's spirit to not depart from him. Psalm 51. He knew from first-hand experience with Saul what happens when God withdraws his spirit from someone. And while God doesn't withdraw his spirit from David, David is judged for his sin, and his kingdom does begin to unravel. But how can this happen? Since God will promise David an everlasting kingdom. Because David's kingdom isn't the main point. It's Christ's kingdom, the son of David. So we've seen Saul abandoned. We've seen David anointed. Now look, thirdly, Christ is anointed. The king was the anointed one here, right? But what's the Hebrew word for anointed one? Messiah. What's the Greek word for Messiah? Christos. The hopes and promises associated with the anointed one, with Israel's king, are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's a job title. Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the king over God's people. This all prepares the way for the new anointed one, the Messiah, the new Christ. And so we read in Luke chapter 3, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. See, Jesus is the new messianic king. The Spirit anoints him. And no sooner does the Spirit touch down in David's life than he's catapulted into endless trouble. We're going to see that from verse chapter 17 on. Though things are good with Saul for now, beginning in chapter 18, Saul's envy, Saul's anger, Saul's plots will begin, and David, the man endowed with the Spirit, will be hounded and hunted, pursued and betrayed, trapped and escaping, hiding in caves, living in exile, driven to the edge, right to the end of 1 Samuel. The Spirit comes, the trouble begins. So it was for Christ. Mark 1, 10 to 13. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Same thing that happened to David. Because Jesus is David's greater son. And he's walking in David's steps. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, just like the people of Israel went out into the wilderness after they were baptized in the Red Sea. 
being tempted by Satan. So David's anointed. Saul is abandoned. Christ is anointed. Fourthly and finally, we are anointed. We are anointed. In Christ, dear ones, we are anointed with the Holy Spirit of God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. Can you believe it? Numbers 11.29, Moses said, I wish the Lord would put his spirit on all his people. Moses' wish turned into Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2, which was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus' words in John 14 that he would send the spirit after he was risen from the dead. And that was exactly what was experienced in the early church in the book of Acts chapter 1 and 2 as the spirit is pulled out, poured out in prophetic fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 upon Jews and Gentiles all those who believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And dear one, if you're a believer here this morning, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, the spirit that was upon your covenant leader, Jesus, is distributed to you as a member of his church, empowering you to fulfill your task of being his representative on earth. As Jesus' messianic community, we as his church are anointed by our Messiah to make baptize, teach his disciples, and to fulfill his mission on earth. And no sooner are we brought into subjection to Jesus that we can be swamped with trouble too. There can seem to be no relief from the pressure and no end to the pounding. And this trouble, dear one, is not a sign of sin. It's a sign of sonship. You're getting what David got. Everyone who's anointed gets this. And if you don't, you're not anointed. Our Father's not punishing you. He's training you. The wilderness experience is a sign of God's presence, not God's absence. We may later find ourselves speaking of the angels like Jesus did who were ministering to us in the midst of the wild animals. I know you will one day. You'll find out, I trust. As David did later on when he wrote in 2 Samuel 4, 9, the God who has redeemed my life from all distress. We don't see it now, but we will see it. And you're anointed to that end. You're anointed so that you can face the troubles of this life empowered by the very spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. You can make it, you will make it. And that's good news. I'll often remind younger people or even adults that we have the privilege of baptizing. Before we baptize, I'll read the passage. If I meet up with them earlier, we'll read through the passage uh, in Matthew 3 or Mark 1 about Jesus' baptism. And then I'll read what happens right after it. And I'll say, do not be surprised if on Monday or Tuesday of next week, you don't feel like you're saved because everything's against you. That's what happens to Christians. So I hope you didn't sign up for an easy life here in this baptism. I hope you don't think it's all going to go great now. It will be better. It will be good. It will eventually be perfect. But it's hard. We've got a cross that waits for us after we get out of the baptismal. We put it down to get in. We pick it back up when we get out. And it's the same way every day of our lives. You can put it to rest by your bedside table, but you better pick it up in the morning. And you better carry it for the rest of your life. Take up your cross monthly, 
daily. How will you do that? You're anointed. That's how you'll do it. The Holy Spirit will carry you as you carry your cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for giving us a Savior, an unexpected shepherd king from the tribe of Judah, from the town of Bethlehem, from the family of Jesse. Thank you for giving us a shepherd after your own heart. You said that in Jeremiah 3. I will give you shepherds after my own heart. Thank you that you have given us your very heart in giving us the Jesus, your, Lord, the, the, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our chief and good shepherd. Thank you, Lord Jesus, as the good shepherd that you laid down your life for the sheep. Thank you that you vow to carry us and pursue us and help us. And dear spirit, thank you for anointing us. Thank you for anointing Jesus in his humanity and enabling him to carry out his ministry. And because of his resurrection and his promise and his covenant keeping, we too are anointed with the spirit. We are not Christ, but we are Christians. We are little Christ's. We are those who are in him. We are those who are united to him. And we are those who are partake of the same spirit that he partakes of. Thank you for anointing our lives. Thank you for promising that this anointing has sealed us and will never depart from us. That we are, it is the guarantee of our inheritance. Thank you that we are sealed for heaven and heaven is sealed in us. And that we will make it because of your anointing. We praise you for this good news. We praise you for this gospel that is present even in 1 Samuel 16. And for those among us who are yet walking apart from the kingship of Jesus, not recognizing him as Lord, not following him as Lord, not submitting to him as Lord, not confessing him as Lord, Lord, would you draw them? Draw them sweetly into his kingdom. Disturb them with whatever harmful spirit you need to send so that they might see the sanity that is found beneath the cross of Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond.